O'Connell. How could you do something like this? You eat meat, don't you, Fleischman? Well, say hello to meat. This isn't meat. This is a majestic animal living by its wits in the wild. Was a majestic animal living by its wits in the wild. Hello, and welcome to the Northern Overexposure Podcast. And it is 2020. 2020. Yeah, it's a new year. Happy New Year, Charles. Happy New Year. New Year, new decade. Same podcast. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's funny to think that uh, this show is officially 30 years old since it started. Yeah, that's the thing I was most excited for. We can now say this is a 30-year-old podcast without any hyperbole behind it. Yeah, well, we finally made it. 30th anniversary Netflix edition, hopefully, coming out soon. (laughs) I really want this show (laughs) to be streaming, you know? Yeah, it doesn't have to be rebooted. It just has to be brought (laughs) to a streaming service so that people can watch it without having to... uh, People need to know about this show. Scrupulous manners. It's so yeah. good. <laughs> I know. Then people will know what we're talking about. And yeah. <laughs> what are we talking about, Lee? We're talking about Northern Exposure, the famed uh, CBS drama, comedy, dramedy series from, uh, I guess, starting in 1990, though I guess at this point, the episode that we're covering today would have been released in 1991. So yeah, this episode itself, maybe more of a 29-year-old, not really 30 years yet, but... <laughs> But we can still say it. And our mission statement is that we overanalyzed every single episode of Northern Exposure. Now, I've never seen Northern Exposure before. I'm looking at it with fresh eyes. But Lee, you've seen it plenty of times and you know what all the curves are going to be thrown out at us. Correct. Yeah. And uh, I was really excited by this episode. I I remember it, but not in full. Uh, I think I told you, Charles, I've seen a lot of the first and second season again and again. The third season is still one of my favorites, and I'm really excited for some of these episodes to come. And this episode surprised me. I was really, I was very into it. You know, we took a little break, some time off for the holidays, and returning to watching the series and taking notes and preparing for this episode with you. Uh, I just got really excited. Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised by this episode as well. I don't know if it was the subject matter, the way they handled it, uh, the fact that I hadn't seen Northern Exposure in three weeks, so I got a palate cleanser. Yeah. It could be a contributing factor of all three of them, but I really enjoyed it. And surprisingly, this, fingers crossed, might be my favorite episode of the season so far. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, I would say, yeah, I think we were very surprised by episode six, uh, The Body in Question. That was a popular episode for us. But no, yeah, I think this episode today, I guess we should mention the title of the episode. It's called A Hunting We Will Go. This episode, I think, stands in the ranks of the greats. You know, this is this was a fun one. Yeah. Do you know what the title references? Oh, no, no, no. You're usually really good at finding what each title is in reference to. I, I had no clue. I kind of was like, Charles will tell me. <laughs> what is it referencing? <laughs> I thought for a split second, I thought it was referencing Merrily We Will Roll Along, the musical by Sondheim, because mm-hmm. they like to reference musicals a lot. But no, they were referencing, and I totally forgot this song existed. It's that old nursing rhyme, uh, A Hunting We Will Go, A Hunting We Will Go. I wait, believe that's how that, it goes. Wait, is that song um, Public Domain, perchance? Uh, <laughs> I, shoot. Actually, I had I had no idea what you were talking about until you started singing it. So I think we might have to leave it's it. It's a really the, I know popular exactly, song. Yeah. yeah. I know exactly I now that you did the first couple seconds of it. So I think it's, I think it's safe to, to play that. Well, you think so, but happy birthday is in public domain. <laughs> That's true. Oh, no. 
Okay, uh, cut back in. We just YouTubed it because we didn't know which melody it was, but... You were singing it right. Uh, yeah, I was singing it right, but it's very close to uh, the other nursery rhyme. What did you call it? The Farmer in the Dell. I think it's actually the same song, just a different lyric of the song, right? I possibly, maybe they were just really lazy in the 1800s. They just like reused the same melody, different lyrics. Yeah. Kind of like, you know, how Twinkle Twinkle Little Star is the same as uh, the alphabet song. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I remember when I found that out when I was very young, it blew my mind. <laughs> and then, yeah, we were just talking about this earlier, like all great artists crib from each other. So it's just like everything has been done before. The alphabet that's song true. is just Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. <laughs> so yeah, that's what the episode title is referencing. And it's really apt because, you know, main plot point, Joel. This is hunting. like the hunting episode. Yeah. Recently, a lot of the episodes have had maybe different plot lines and different directions. This episode has that as well. But for some reason, everything seems really centered around this idea of hunting. Um, I guess there is sort of the Ed and Ruth Ann plot line, which we'll get to. Yeah, that one's a really fun plot point as well. But I would have to say that Northern Exposure does a really great job of doing man versus nature. And this mm, is mm-hmm. a great example of man versus nature, which is using man literally yeah. going against it by hunting its denizens. Have you ever uh, been hunting, Charles? No, I've never been hunting. Um, I have friends and because we live in an area where hunting is very common, many of them have been hunting and I ask them questions all the time, badgering mm-hmm. them saying like, oh, well, would you use this gun to kill this animal? Or like, <laughs> what do you do when this happens? Uh, did Dick Cheney do the right thing? <laughs> Stuff like that. But no, I've never been hunting myself. Uh, what same, about you? Same. No, I've never been hunting. I've never fired a gun. Not, I have nothing against it. Uh, definitely interested. I feel like I would be like the annoying Joel Fleischman in this episode when he finally gets uh, the, sh- the what is it? Is it a shotgun? What are they using? They're using a shotgun. Yeah. When he finally has the gun in his hands and he's asking all these questions to Chris, you can tell Chris is... I love Chris when he is annoyed because he never, I mean, he's never annoyed, right? He always plays it cool. He's just trying to balance uh, Joel's excitement, right? You can tell Joel is very giddy and Chris is sort of trying not to make a joke of it. Just trying to play it cool. (laughs) Yeah. He, I don't know why I got this impression, this feeling is Chris was a real person. Mm -hmm. And let's say you were really annoyed at Chris or you didn't like Chris as a person. Even if you treated him that manner, I don't think Chris would react the same way back toward you. Oh, yeah. Like Chris would probably be like, oh, it's okay, man. Like, let's just sit here and talk about it. Like, uh, you know, it's fine that you don't like me. Yeah. He's worldly enough to know that. So like these things just bounce off of him. So Joel's tendency to pester him with all these questions about hunting and being overly exhilarated and excited they don't seem to annoy him the same way it would annoy another person. And I thought that that was a really nice touch on Chris's character. Yeah, that's great. That's a good um, insight. I'm trying to think of moments when we've actually seen Chris stressed. And it's usually a sort of a introspective problem that he's facing some sort of moral dilemma. Not necessarily moral, but just a existential crisis, maybe. <laughs> There's also that episode, that one famed episode <laughs> where he gets a adult adopted by Maurice, they sort of have a falling out, you know, and it's not necessarily raging or anything, but you could tell he gets a little stressed and uh, upset, I guess. Yeah. uh, I guess also whenever he has the supposed bomber visit his place, even though it was a dream sequence. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, he's still incredibly. No, but he's super, super, he's super cool as a cucumber, you know? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I would also say that they are using the right gun, if oh, I am for, correct. You use a shotgun to hunt birds because a shotgun sprays out pellets in a wide radius, so it's easier the bird to shot. nail okay. a bird whenever they're flying in a flock like that. Right. Please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, <laughs> listeners, if yeah. any of you are hunters. <laughs> well, let's pick it up from where we started off with the opening quote of this episode. Um, Maggie has just rolled into, I guess, the center of Sicily with a 10-point buck uh, in her truck bed. You know, this is something, uh, I probably learned this a long time ago and forgot it, but it recently was brought back to my attention. Do you know what the point rating scale is for, uh, you know, when you call something a 10-point buck? Do you know what that means? Oh, gosh. I used to, but I forgot. And it's a very interesting piece of trivia. Uh, why is it called that again? Yeah, it's a simple answer. The 10 point buck means if you look at its horns, it has 10 points. So I guess the larger mm. a deer gets and, and the older it gets, its horns will break off and segment off even more. And so you'll have more points on the horns. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. So Maggie's got the 10 point buck and Joel sees it and Joel, you know, speaking to character is initially repulsed by it because he thinks that hunting is a very savage uh, outdated yeah. ritual, something that shouldn't be done. And Maggie responds back with saying like, oh, well, like, of course you would think that. And you think that, you know, you're so morally high by having them be in zoos. And I took a little bit of offense to that because <laughs> zoos provide conservation efforts, education and research. Uh, I'm not saying that all zoos are wonderful or that, that there's never been a zoo that mistreated an animal, but many zoos do contribute to animal populations, uh, certain species of them still surviving. It's provided a lot of benefit to everyone. So I'm, I'm pro zoo. And yeah. Well, I, I don't like Maggie talking bad about them. I don't have a, what is the phrase? I don't have a horse in this race. But um, mm-hmm. the, the opposite uh, side of that argument is that uh, a lot of conservation is a lot of conservation effort is propelled by hunters too. you know, the amount that they spend uh, hunting license and things like that all, you know, can go towards conservation. Again, I've never hunted. Uh, I've <laughs> only been to a zoo a couple times. Not really a big fan of either, uh, but so I, I don't, <laughs> I don't really stand, you know, kind of like Joel, you know, Joel begins this episode, uh, with a, with a strong argument and realizes that he doesn't really know what he's talking about and he wants to change that. So, um, I'm kind of like Joel here. I don't really know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, just trying to present the other sides. No, no, I, I totally understand. And hunting does provide its own merits. Um, and that's really interesting that you say that because Joel goes full circle throughout the whole episode. And if you allow me to go a little bit past the initial first five minutes of the episode, mm-hmm. we see that Joel's entire cycle is that he's repulsed by hunting, then he goes hunting and he loves it. Then yeah. he realizes the consequences of his actions. And he kind of comes back out the other side, not where he initially stood yeah. like a circle, but kind of just like a journey that he had taken right there. Yeah, it's a really incredible sort of arc that is made by Joel. I want to take it in stride, though. Can we, can we go like step no, by step? No, I definitely do. Yeah. Cool. Uh, let's, let's stay in this scene because uh, apart from what we were just saying, you know, we just talked about the arguments. Uh, and it is kind of funny in this soundbite that we played in the beginning. Joel does sound a little excessively whiny. You know, he's really leaning into, Rob Morrow is really leaning into the Joel character pretty hard. But hey, he's got to start from one side of the spectrum and come out 
when he gets on the other side of the episode, he has to kind of draw some sort of change. So maybe he picks the most extreme character to play in the beginning. That way he has an easier target to hit whenever he's uh, trying to make his landing at the end. But I love this line that Joel uh, feeds to Maggie. He says, There's a moral imperative involved here, O'Connell. Oh, really? What yeah. is it? For a person to derive pleasure out of causing the death of a vibrant living thing, that's ethically wrong. And that's sort of in response to Maggie's whole argument about uh, demoralized animals living huddled behind bars in an urban zoo. You know, we, we just sort of made that argument amongst ourselves. But that's what's essentially playing out in this opening scene. Yeah. And Maggie also argues saying that the reason that Joel even feels this in the first place is because of a social construct that he has devised within his head that says killing another animal is wrong. And she says, it's like, that's, that wouldn't be anything at all if we humans hadn't thought of that in the first place. And I kind of take fault with that argument Mm -hmm. because we are a social construct though. Like that's the reason that we've able to get this far in our civilization is because of morals and laws that we've enacted. So yeah, in some way we are burdened by that. Maggie might be able to say, no, like the only reason this thing is wrong is because someone else said so. There's no law in nature that says it's wrong. Look at all the other animals eat each other. Mm -hmm. But I think as humans, I think that we're above we are the laws naturally. of nature. You know, we're not just part of the food chain. We, we have, we <laughs> yeah. have a conscious part of us. Uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. It's like, uh, there is something that separates us from, from animals. So we don't necessarily, you know, Fleischman is arguing we can act civilized, you know, but his, his idea of civilized is, uh, what does he say later in a, in a later scene? He says, God also gave us Sizzler and Safeway, and T-Bones wrapped in little cellophane packages, you know? <laughs> so, you know, there. Are, what's great about this opening sort of argument is it is like a sort of a thesis, uh, opening thesis. It's like, what is the solution to this problem? And it's not until a little bit later that Joel finally decides he's going to test it. He's like, all right, I don't know anything about this. I'm going to go hunting. But this first scene sort of sets up that major dramatic question. I, I do want to talk a little bit about the direction of this scene. Give a little shout out yeah, to yeah. the director of this episode, Bill Dahlia. Uh, he's a recurring player here. He directed um, in season two, the episode War and Peace, which is one of our favorites. And then in season three, uh, just a couple episodes before this one, the episode Only You. So we probably talked about him before on this podcast, but I don't think we mentioned this. I just found out that he directed an episode of The West Wing. In really? season one. Which episode? The Shortlist. Oh, that's a great episode. Yeah. Uh, and I would say uh, this episode really stood out to me. I'm trying to recall, I mean, obviously I remember a lot of War and Peace. Only You, that's the episode where Chris falls in love with the optometrist. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly, but this episode for sure stood out to me. And this opening scene is really cool. So... What's happening is while they're arguing, Joel is sort of huddling around Maggie and she's trying to untie this 10 point buck that she has in the back of her pickup truck. And the camera is focused on Joel, sort of looking over Maggie's shoulder. And this is while Joel is sort of feeding out his monologue, arguing at Maggie. Uh, As soon as Maggie starts to argue back, she crosses around and starts to, you know, as she's untying this 10 point buck, she crosses around and basically... 
change his position with Joel. So the camera hasn't moved at all, but now the camera is focused looking on Maggie over Joel's shoulder. So it's just really great example of blocking and moving through the scene. And in fact, um, this happens at least one more time. Like they cross each other while the camera is still stationary. We don't cut, but they kind of swap positions so that we can see their face as they're delivering their power, most powerful lines. I think this scene ends with uh, Joel berates Maggie, says something like, what gives you the right? And she says, my hunting license. And that's like the line which she crosses and she says that line and then it, it ends, you know. Just a really great example of blocking I wanted to point out. Yeah. Uh, is it the director that's responsible solely for the blocking or is it the actors that decide it? That's an um, interesting question. I mean, usually, I think we've talked about this before, usually what will happen is obviously uh, they rehearse with the script and whenever they get to rehearse the scene, sometimes they'll rehearse on a set or maybe it just happens that it's the day that we have to shoot this scene. Let's put the camera up and see what we can find. Usually they'll let the actors sort of act out the scene and see what happens. And then they'll put the camera where they think is the best angle for what the actors are doing. But sometimes the actors, the director and the director of photography, you know, the person who's sort of controlling the, where the frame of the camera lands at the end, uh, they probably all work together in tandem to decide, all right, for this line, you should probably move here. So definitely for like stage, I would assume that a, a director kind of decides where each actor will fall, you know, and where all the lights will be pointed, you know. Um, so uh, it wouldn't be too different to think that a director of a television series might be the one choosing the blocking. But, you know, I think it's equally as likely that the actors might be a uh, part of that conversation. Hmm. Okay. No, I noticed that too. And I thought that that was really nice, but I think I was mostly impressed by the tagline, uh, her saying, Oh, my hunting license gives me the ability yeah. to do it. That's a nice little line right there. Do they have? Yeah. And the acting, I should, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that, uh, there's a lot of great acting going on in this episode. Props to the, the wonderful talent. Oh, of course. I want to go back and also talk about just one more time about the content of what Maggie is saying. Yes. And I wanted to examine the theme that she was saying that we were just social constructs or really mm -hmm. that it's the lack of social construct and that really we're just trying to go down and be human and try to hunt. And they talk about it a little bit later in the episode as well, where mm -hmm. Chris and Holling are also talking about, you know, going down to your base self and just hunting yeah. and moving okay. up from there. Mm -hmm. uh, I could not help but think about the sky cake bit by Patton Oswald. Are you familiar oh, wait. with that? Uh, yes. Re refresh my memory. This. <laughs> yeah. Um, we can play the bit. And I, I'm an atheist and I love religion. I really do. And I don't love religion in a snarky, mean spirited way. I, I unabashedly, sincerely love that we have religion because if we didn't, we wouldn't be here right now being all postmodern and ironic. There'd be no civilization. If no one invented religion, we'd be f right now. Because at the dawn of man, civilization was the biggest and the strongest. And that's as far as we we're going to go. It was whoever was the biggest, f killed, ate anything they wanted. That was it. Civilization was a huge psychopath with a club going, I'm going to have rape for dinner. That was it. <laughs> that's as far as we were going to go. And then one of my ancestors, some weakling, said, look, there's no way I can beat that guy. But what if I trick him into thinking that if he doesn't kill and rape people while he's down here, when he dies, there's a magic city in the clouds and he can go up and have all the cake he wants. 
Now, that's not a very well-formed plan, but he went and told the big psycho, and the psycho heard that and said, yeah, I like cake. Boom! There you go. That was the beginning of civilization. Now we can work on fire and writing and agriculture. That's religion. It's the old sky cake dodge. It worked. Yes. Yo, that's totally true. It's like we all have to kind of agree on this one thing for there to be order, you know, and that's Joel's argument in the beginning of the episode is, you know, we have to agree that there is a line that we shouldn't step across, at least according to Joel. Well, quick aside real fast. I just want to say that the, at least the beginning, like the first like 10 or so minutes of this episode, very much feels like it's all focused on Joel. Uh, basically, almost every scene that he enters, it begins with, hey, what do you think about hunting? You know, like every scene is just asking a new uh, supporting cast member, what are your thoughts on hunting? You know, and this is the scene with, with Chris and Holling, and, and they're talking about sort of, you know, this is our natural place on the food chain. The animals actually expect us to hunt them. You know, that that's their argument. And I love Chris's line. He says, you know, it's best to kill the meat before you eat it. Otherwise you tend to hear it scream. <laughs> and he says it kind of so nonchalantly. Yeah. Which is, I guess, yeah. <laughs> what, <laughs> what? I, I, I don't want to call him out for that. It just seems like if you're going to go the way of hunting, then you might as well go full on hunting. Like you might as well hear the abysmal scream of the animal as you take its life away. Uh, <laughs> and I, I don't, I'm not trying to say like hunting is wrong. I'm not no, trying to say no, any no, of that. I'm not trying saying. to stake an That's opinion on this. I'm just, you know. It's like if you're going to do something primal, try not to make it civilized or, or try not to, uh, what's the word? Soften it, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Like, put your money where your mouth is. Like, you can't have your cake and eat it, too. Well, I don't know. Yeah, and I guess that's kind of what Joel finds out, right? I mean, we're going to get there, but yeah, like you said, he does get to hunt, and then he sort of denounces it in a way, but he comes out way more changed, more knowledgeable about the idea, you know? Uh, we'll get there in a second. I, I did want to mention, I kind of was just saying it, but how this episode really seems to be focused on hunting. Like the, you know, it's, it's very central in theme, but I think it's very, I think it's almost very brilliantly written that every scene seems to be focused on this one theme when actually, it, it actually takes a while for the Ruth Ann plot line to develop, right? Like the mm-hmm. first scene where Ed and Ruth Ann are starting to talk and it, you can see that Ed is um, concerned with Ruth Ann's age. Actually... What am I trying to get at? What I'm trying to say is normally in most episodes of Northern Exposure, we get the A plot, the B plot, the C plot, whatever there is. It all sort of begins like the groundwork is started in the very beginning of this ep- in the episode, right? We, we sort of get our beginning of the plot line, the inciting incidents, and they all sort of intertwine. Whereas in this episode... I could be misremembering it, so uh, let me know if I'm wrong, Charles. But it feels like it's all focused on hunting, especially like, you know, when we first see Ruth Ann, she has a hairline fracture of the fifth metatarsal, you know, something broke in her foot. So she's visiting Joel, looking at an x-ray. And in fact, that is sort of the inciting incident for her plotline with Ed. But the scene, the text of the scene is focused on hunting because Joel says, you know, what do you think about hunting, Ruth Ann? So all I'm trying to say is I, I like that this plot line sort of sneaks up on us. It doesn't seem to be set up in the very beginning, even though it, in fact, is visually set up. You know, she broke her foot. That's kind of what begins that whole old age um, investigation theme. But I, I don't know. I love how sneaky it is. 
Does that make yeah. sense? No, no, it totally makes sense. I see what you're trying to say. Uh, of the two plot lines, the first one, the hunting one, is one that resembles a journey where you come from one end and you come out the other end with some experience. You don't necessarily have to go back to your original point, but you're kind of still there in some regard. Like you're, mm-hmm. It's like going from both extremes and settling on the middle. Whereas the second plot point involving Ruth and Ed is more of a buildup because it doesn't present itself initially very clearly what it's going to be about. And I thought it was going to go in a number of directions, but as the episode goes on, we can see that it's dealing with mortality and Ed Mm -hmm. trying to grasp with people that he loves going away away forever. Yeah. Yeah. And there are two different styles of plot points that are being presented as episodes. And I would agree with you. Structure. Yeah, exactly. And I think they both play well, uh, wonderfully throughout this episode. What's, what's so cool about the hidden nature of that plot line is, again, as I was saying, the text of that first scene with Ruthann is, is mostly pretty much all about hunting. But, uh, you know, there's a wonderful shot where Joel is holding up the x-ray and Ruthann falls out of focus and the x-ray is sort of in the foreground. It's like right in front of our faces, but we're not really thinking about... Ruthann and old age, it's just an excuse to get her in the office so that Joel can talk to her about hunting. Whereas, uh, no, the writer later on in the script picks up that little breadcrumb and turns it into a whole subplot uh, about, as you said, death and mortality and losing, losing your friend if, you know. From old age, I guess. <laughs> yeah, just the passage of time, people mm-hmm. leaving you, which is probably something that Ed is very sensitive with. Uh, people that he loves uh, leaving him and drastic change. But we'll get there soon. Okay. Let's, what let's we go with the next? hunting plot. Yeah. So Joel decides that he wants to enlighten himself and he wants to come along with the hunt with Chris and... Hauling, yeah. Yeah. So... I really like this uh, part of the episode. This is a whole middle part where Joel is going to the extreme end of yeah. hunting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're packing and Joel is showing that yeah, at least he's bringing the proper precautions. He's got the <laughs> vest. He's got its bright colors. Make sure he doesn't get shot. Mm-hmm. He can't accurately describe any of the things like bullets being shells and using a shotgun instead mm-hmm. of a rifle for birds. But he's in the right spirit. Yeah, we also get a little bit of Shelley in this plot line. Really, I think what's hinted at and, and what we see is, I think it's in this scene, we kind of get the idea that Holling actually doesn't really like hunting that much anymore. Like he's kind of realizing that himself because throughout the episode, he, you know, is always trying to make an excuse. I mean, he probably really just wants to go back and hang out with Shelley, you know, but he's very uninterested really he's he's always trying to like move quickly so that they can just get it over with right uh i somewhat agree with you yeah i don't think that he dislikes hunting anymore i think that he's just indifferent to hunting right now because it's not like he doesn't agree to stay for another day whenever joel requests that he wants to hunt more of the birds it's just that he wants to return home to be with shelly and i think there's a big difference to that because if he disliked hunting in the first place, he wouldn't be there. Well, Shelly makes the argument. It's like, I know you still have it in you, even though you don't want to hunt anymore. It's kind of like myself, you know, Shelly talking about herself. Like, I really like heavy metal music, but I don't necessarily like go to crazy shows anymore or anything. But what, what is her analogy that she gives? Uh, headbanging? Yeah. So she's trying to draw that comparison to, you know, Hauling still has, uh, there's a part of him somewhere inside of him that still has that, uh, still gets excitement from hunting or, you know, 
photography now. But I don't know. For me, that was uh, really something that was brought into question this episode. I, I don't know. I really did think, does Holling even really like this anymore? But I think you make a good, uh, a good argument that he does stick around for an extra day, even though he said, oh, we can leave now, like we're done. But he agrees to stick around one more day. So, oh, sorry. I just saw this in my notes. But at the mm-hmm. very... Literally, like, this is just one second of uh, action, but at the very closing end of the scene, as Shelly is walking back into the brick, she says, oh, hey, Pete, did you see this? Like, this little kid. I did. I guess he's a paper boy, maybe? Like, hands her a piece of paper. I thought that was the paper boy, yeah. That was the only thing I could think of. I was like, well, when you go hunting, it's really early. Uh Uh, It would make sense that that's around the time the paper boy gets there. He's kind of youngish. Looks like he's working a job, like a part-time job. We've never seen Pete before, right? I've never seen him, yeah. It's such a strange line to have that. I guess like Maurice owns the newspaper, right? I mean, he owns the radio station. Does Maurice control all information going inside and outside of Sicily? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) One man can't have that much power. Uh, It's all Maurice. (laughs) Well, before we do, I almost forgot to... We kind of talked about this already, but I think it's very exciting and surprising to see that Joel... uh, That scene between Chris, Holling, and Joel where Joel is really starting to question his morals. It's really fascinating to watch this character who, you know, a lesser writer uh, will just, you know, fall into the same tropes. Oh, it's Joel. He would never go hunting. We get to see actual change happening. We get to see those gears turning in his head in this scene. And he says, look, I recognize I know nothing about this. Let's do it. Um, sorry, didn't mean to bring us back to that because we've already kind of no, gotten past it. But No, it's all right. Uh, I Honestly, I have no problem keep revisiting that because I think it's a very interesting discussion, particularly because Joel has very strong feelings initially. And then we talked about this already, but he kind of reverses it now where whenever he shoots his first bird and he gets really exhilarated, he goes to the opposite end. And I think it's to represent the argument that perhaps both sides are right in their own way. And Mm -hmm. it really just depends on which side that you want to peer into. Yeah. I always think like the smartest solution to any argument is, uh, both sides are right. You know, you have to kind of, especially if you're making art or something, you can't be so didactic and, and say, this is the right way because, uh, I wrote it and this is what I believe, you know, but it's something where it's acknowledging both sides. Yeah. Do you mind if I use another television show to describe the feelings that I'm having toward yeah. Strong arguments. And okay. it happened to be that if it's well, because it's about hunting as well. Um, okay. Yeah, so me and you both watch Sports Night, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah, uh, the character of Jeremy, played by Joshua Molina, he actually has a whole monologue about hunting. And this isn't to reflect my own views on hunting, but it's to demonstrate that he felt very strongly about it, and that's just one man's opinion. We shot a deer in the woods near Lake Mattituck on the second day. There was a special vest they had me wear so that they could distinguish me from things they wanted to shoot, and I was pretty grateful for that. Almost the whole day had gone by and we hadn't gotten anything. Eddie was getting frustrated and Bob Shoemaker was getting embarrassed. A camera guy needed to reload, so I told everybody to take a 10-minute break. There was a stream nearby and I walked over with this care package Natalie made me. Sat down. When I looked up, I saw three of them. Small, bigger, biggest. Recognizable to any species on the face of the planet as a child, a mother, and a father. Now, the trick in shooting deer is you got to get them out in the open. And it's tough with deer because these are clever, cagey animals with an intuitive sense of danger. 
know what you have to do to get a deer out in the open? You hold out a Twinkie. That animal clopped up to me like we were at a party. She seemed to be pretty interested in the Twinkie, so I gave it to her. Looking back, she'd have been better off if I'd given her the damn vest. And Bob kind of screamed at me and whispered, move away. The camera had been reloaded, and it looked like the day wasn't going to be a washout after all. So I backed away, a couple of steps at a time. And I closed my eyes when I heard the shot. Look, I know these are animals, and they don't play bridge and go to the prom, but you can't tell me that the little one didn't know who his mother was. That's got to mean something. And later at the hospital, Bob Shoemaker was telling me about the nobility and tradition of hunting and how it related to the Native American Indians. And I nodded, and I said that was interesting while I was thinking about what a load of crap it was. Hunting was part of Indian culture. It was food, and it was clothes, and it was shelter. They sang and danced and offered prayers to the gods for a successful hunt so that they could survive just one more unimaginably brutal winter. The things they had to kill held the highest place of respect for them, and to kill for fun was a sin. And they knew the gods wouldn't be so generous next time. What we did wasn't food, and it wasn't shelter, and it sure wasn't sports. It was just mean. And Jeremy has this whole monologue about his feelings about hunting. And his boss, Isaac, who he is relating to, says, Jeremy, if you felt this strongly about hunting, you should have told us that. We wouldn't have fired you just because you wanted to try to convince us of an argument. And... I like this because Jeremy is obviously strongly in one anti, camp and yeah. how he feels about it. He's anti-hunting. And his boss, Isaac, believes that not necessarily what Jeremy is saying, but the passion and strength in which he is relaying mm-hmm. his message out. And I, I think that it's nice that Jeremy felt this way. And it didn't necessarily mean it was the right way, though. Even though Jeremy made entirely convincing arguments. Right. I think that Joel, in this episode, experiences the other end of it. And Joel also has, you know, proper arguments to be made in favor of hunting and how it feels to be alive, to be at top of the food chain. And I think this episode does a great job of oscillating between the two. Exactly. As we said, like, the opening argument sets the stage and... uh It's just a great exploration of a theme and just the idea of like humans place in the world and what hunting means, you know? Mm -hmm. Can we talk about that shot of Joel shooting his first bird? Yes. I believe it's the first time he shoots it, but the camera kind of wheels with him. Yeah. It's like dollying in fast. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was the coolest shot so far of Northern Exposure. What is, what's happening? I think uh, Chris is reading from a paperback. Actually, I, I could not tell what uh, paperback he's reading. Could you uh, make that out? No, I tried. Uh, I think we've asked this multiple times, but if any of our listeners have the Blu-rays, you know, next time I'll provide a timestamp, but this is the scene, I think it's the same scene when Joel shoots uh, the grouse, right? Um, Yes. Chris is reading a paperback and he says, have you ever had a pure moment? And uh, Chris relates some... Uh, basically tripping or something like drinking some moonshine in prison and staring at the ceiling or something like that. And that was his pure moment. But as this is happening, some birds fly up and Chris sort of dictates the instructions to Joel to like follow. Uh, Actually, he says, what do you say? Link, linger, lash out. That's from another scene, but he sort of gives him the steps. And uh, as this is happening, Joel is like lining up the shot. The camera whooshes in really fast with the dolly straight onto Joel and... Pull trigger, sound effect. Yeah. 
pretty exciting uh dynamic type of uh, photography. Yeah, I thought it was a neat way to demonstrate action with the use of a camera because not only is Joel doing something exciting and something very forceful, the camera is too because it's going in so quickly like that. We don't see a lot of shots like that in Northern Exposure. Definitely not. It's not one of those shows that is, well, I don't know. It's certainly very stylized, but uh, it, it doesn't have too many crazy, you know, camera stylings. But it does have really cool... A lot of times we'll have really cool dollying shots. It's a little slower paced and, and very long takes, you know. Uh, we mentioned the opening argument is one long take with uh, the blocking moving around a lot. But um, yeah, this is an exciting, hyper-stylized dolly move that we get here. Uh, just to take an, another moment to talk about the direction and the camera movement and stuff in this episode, we are remarking on how amazing some of these uh, longer takes are. But even when this episode uh, deals with uh, coverage, cutting between one actor and another, I think it still lingers in the right moments, uh, at the right in the right sense. What I'm trying to say is there is a scene between Joel and Maggie. Uh, This is before the hunt. And Maggie says something like, you know, you got to come pick up your magazine. Uh, I'm not going to mail, I'm not going to deliver it to you like I normally do. And he says, I'm sorry, I can't. I've got to go hunting at the crack of dawn. And she's kind of incredulous. But, you know, the camera will cut from Joel, a single coverage on Joel to a single shot on Maggie. And Joel begins to leave the scene and Maggie is still standing there sort of a calling after him. And instead of uh, Joel, when he breaks off, instead of him just leaving the scene entirely, the camera still cuts back to him. He's like walking away. He doesn't say anything, but he's walking away. And and I like that it lingers on him uh, in those moments. And Maggie is still shouting after him. Uh, Again, just on this type of coverage, uh, we haven't gotten here yet, but there's a scene between Ed and Ruthann where the camera really lingers on Ed at the end of a scene. He's sort of, uh, he learns that Ruthann is 75 years old. It's a lot older than he imagined. She had just told him that, what, her son's mother-in-law died at the age of 72. So Ed is just sitting there kind of opening a can of kosher chicken noodle soup and doesn't really say anything, but the camera really lingers on his reaction. Yeah, I think that those are really valuable shots to have, and they're not done super often. In my theory, why is because... Television is valuable commodity each minute, each second that you can be using because it has to be an appropriate amount of time because you're airing it on the airwaves and they're going to cut you off if it's not at a certain time frame. So for them to waste that time doing a shot where nothing is happening, like it's just silence, is just something that people don't like to do. They like to show it using words or some sort of action uh, to get the most bang for your buck. So I I do like when the directors, especially we were saying for this episode, whenever they demonstrate it by having a silent speak instead of having words speak. Even whenever the camera is cutting, they choose to linger on certain shots. You know, it's not, uh, even when it's not like a single take scene, uh, they, they don't rush through the edit. And, you know, just to piggyback on what you're saying, Charles, you know, obviously every minute, every second counts to advertisers, I guess, you know, it's time is money, you know, but by the same token, I think uh, just audiences today, uh, as opposed to in the nineties and in the seventies before that audiences today have just 
a much larger visual vocabulary. Like we can understand uh, what a film and a sequence of edits is trying to tell us a lot quicker than uh, previous audiences, generations past. So things can move a lot quicker. We won't feel as lost. But no, there's definitely an argument to be made uh, for slower cinema or slower television. Yeah, I've really gotten into that recently. Uh, really slow moving, I guess, just very silent plays. And uh, I have a huge admiration for the playwright Annie Baker, who does that a lot. And in a lot of her plays where there's, I think there's, honest to God, I think there's more silence than dialogue yeah. in the plays. You shared a play with me once, and, and obviously there are line breaks where it says silence or beat. But in the opening of the text, it says a beat means like, what, five seconds. Silence means 30 seconds. You know, it's like she gives you a strict duration for each little uh, what sort of like a um, context uh, key you know like a table what, what would you call that a key I guess yeah it's like the prelude there's a oh gosh I'm missing it out of my head right now there is a specific word it's like the playwright's note in yeah. the mm -hmm. first page when you open it and you're right it says it outright saying like it needs to be this duration of time otherwise you are not performing the play that I wrote and it seems very calculated but essentially what she's getting at is that yes it needs to be very long. If you think it's long, it's probably not long enough, right? Yes, that was exactly a <laughs> phrase that she used. And as a person that's really into dialogue, I find that a refreshing pace to go the opposite of that direction, which is what this episode is demonstrating a lot. Mm -hmm. Instead of using dialogue to provide their points, they're just having the camera linger right there. Uh, a little quick piece of trivia. You know that in The Simpsons, whenever they had to cut time for their television airing. They had to like edit a lot. The way they would decide it and the way they can milk the most time was by editing the title sequence. Cutting it down? Yeah, they could either cut it down or let it play for its full duration. Oh, so let's yeah. say they had like a full minute of jokes that they wanted to have in there. They're like, we, I really want this. I don't want to cut it. They would just cut the title sequence a little bit and Boom. that's how they could fill in more time. And I was like, that's a really smart idea. <laughs> that's great, yeah. Speaking of cutting title sequences... <laughs> Um, this is really dumb, but I noticed on this episode, I don't know if it's been happening a lot, but this episode starts with the title sequence. There's no opening gambit. And mm -hmm. if you're familiar with the Northern Exposure theme, I know it's copyrighted or whatever, but you know, it has that drum fill that goes, right? This episode, at least on my DVD, uh, starts with a shorter drum fill. It just goes, doom. So it's like half of the length and then it goes straight into the harmonica, you know? So I thought that was <laughs> peculiar because it's like a quicker intro. Maybe they, they shaved off half a second for <laughs> to have that little moment of pause where Ed is opening that can of chicken noodle soup. That's the price you got to pay, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but yeah, so. I didn't catch that though. I, I really didn't. I don't know if they've been doing that a lot this season uh, or if it's just the way... <laughs> that the transfer made it onto the DVD for this particular episode, but it is a shorter <laughs> little drum fill at the beginning. Yeah. Um, okay. Where are we? We're talking about the hunting. Oh, so earlier, before Joel actually shoots the bird down, this is when he's getting eager, excited, and almost to the point of annoyance. We kind of talked about how Chris plays it really cool. But Joel says something uh, sort of concerning. He, he's getting enthusiastic about uh, holding the shotgun in his hand. And he says, I feel like Bernie Getz. Do you know who that is? Yeah, I had to look him up and I'm disturbed by why Joel wanted to compare himself to Bernie Getz. So for people who don't know who that man is, and I don't blame you since it happened in 1984, Bernie Getz was a man in New York that had 
she was riding on the subway and four youths, uh, they were black and they went on the subway along with them. Allegedly, they had cornered them into the subway and they asked him for five dollars and he thought and maybe it was true, maybe it wasn't, that they were mugging him. So in retaliation, he pulled out his concealed handgun and shot them. And a lot of people heralded him as a hero. They were saying like, oh, he's like a vigilante. He stopped them. He was like holding his own gun. He was standing his own crown. Other people thought, uh, you're being incredibly racist. They were panhandling and you just shot four, four people for nothing but your own preconceived biases and racism. So... Either way, it's a polarizing figure, whichever way that you stand. I think everyone can agree that it's polarizing. And for Joel to compare himself to that is kind of odd. Like He could have used any number of analogy. Like he could have said that he was Nimrod, the god of hunting. <laughs> um, Nimrod, I think, is remembered as a, is it sort of an insult, though. Yeah, thanks <laughs> to Bugs Bunny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Bugs Bunny would always call Elmer Fudd Nimrod, and he would be using it sarcastically, and then Americans thought that that was actually an insult. So that's how it turned into that. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, no, but yeah, to get onto the Bernie Getz, yeah, Joel is very enthusiastically comparing himself. He feels empowered. You know, I guess his camp of the argument is you know, New York City was a crime-ridden city, and this man is a vigilante who stood for justice. But Chris sort of like laughs it off. He's like, oh, okay, Bernie. But I don't know. That's a it's pretty, like you said, it's a pretty strange comparison. I, you know, I'd heard about this, uh, it was the subway shooting, I'd heard about that, but I didn't really realize, so it was 1984, and I was wondering, this is 1991, you know? Mm -hmm. I know that there was sort of a lot of controversy, and a lot of people were on one side of the argument, some people were on the other side, but I, I was trying to figure out at what point in time did, you know, was the, was the trial resolved, um, and sort of now, I would assume that today the, the cultural stance is, uh, you know, probably more so that Bernie Getz was maybe a racist, uh, even if you're not in that camp, you know, I think the idea is that uh, shooting someone, even when you're sort of, you feel like you're in this, this, uh, environment that you're going to get mugged, I think taking, potentially taking someone's life is, uh, maybe a little too drastic, I don't know. Wait, hang on, hang on. You're yeah. on to something here. Okay. Do you think they use Bernie Getz on purpose in order to demonstrate the morally gray area that hunting was? That's interesting. Uh, draw that out for me. Okay, so we talked about how hunting can be both pro and con. Like you can be heavily in one camp and heavily in the other camp and it's a possibility you're both right and there's no actual real answer to it no matter how passionately you may feel in one camp. Bernie Getz is a very polarizing figure. Most people can believe one way, other people can believe the other way. Now, obviously, he got decided by a trial of his peers to decide one way, but that's not necessarily going to sway public opinion, especially to every single individual in America. So, in a way, does Bernie Getz represent hunting, in a way, in that you could be on either camp and have your own beliefs about it? Sort of a contentious argument. Uh, yes. Very polarized <laughs> argument, I guess. Uh, yeah. That's a very interesting comparison. So Joel shoots the grouse down and he doesn't actually kill it outright. It's just wounded. He clipped it. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, Holling and Chris want him to wring its neck so that he can finish it off. And it's part of the hunt in their opinion. Like that's just yeah. part of the job. I mean, yeah, you got to. That's true in every regard. You got to put the animal out of its suffering. Just, otherwise, you're just being malicious and you're hunting for the wrong reasons. 
but Joel just can't do it. And in fact, I love the next shot, which is yeah. them carrying the bird in a like a little um, makeshift stretcher type yeah, thing. Yeah, like an emergency stretcher. And the best part about this scene, in my opinion, is that it's Holling and Chris holding the stretcher <laughs> and there's not like a look of incredulous belief on her face. No, they're, they're in, along with the bit. Yeah, they're along with it. They're like, I, I understand what's going on here. I understand the magnitude of the the magnitude of the situation and they don't make fun of Joel at all. Yeah. It, it, I mean, I think Joel has a line, something like uh, he's trying to decide he's got this dilemma. He's like, I've got to wring its neck. Well, Chris was about to do it for him. He's like, no, no, no. You said this is my kill. I'm going to do it. Like this is, this is my obligation. And then it's the hard cut to Joel's office. So we understand that his decision, you know, it's his obligation. It's his kill. He gets to decide what happens to it. This is what he wants to do. And I love, like you said, Holling and Chris respect that. And uh, actually what's funny, (laughs) I don't know why I didn't think about this, but you don't need Holling and Chris to carry the stretcher. Just one person can carry that. (laughs) But it's, it makes for a great image. Uh, And yeah, so Joel is going to try to nurse it back to life. Uh, we sort of learn about this um, this struggle uh, off screen when Chris and Holling are talking to Maggie, I believe, because, again, she's incredulous that, you know, Joel shot a grouse, but then also that he's trying to repair the mistake that he made, I guess, according to Maggie. There is a line that I think almost sounds like Shakespeare. Again, Maggie is incredulous, but Holling describes Joel, he says, Never have I seen a man clean a gun with more care and vigor, and then Chris, or smile as big after he pulled the trigger. You know, it sounds like a sonnet or something or like a rhyming Mm. couplet, right? Yeah. Huh. I didn't catch that. But that does sound like they took that from someone. Yeah. Yeah. It's like split between two characters and it it rhymes. Uh, So this is how Maggie learns about this, and she goes to visit Joel in his office as he's... Uh, trying to repair this poor little bird. Yeah. Uh, is that an actual bird? Like, did they actually get a bird and just wrap it up in bandages and everything? It, it certainly looks real, but... I'm trying to remember what it looks like in this scene. I know whenever in the scene when Joel has to wring its neck, there's a close-up on the bird and you can see it breathing and like sort of blinking or like moving its head. That's definitely a real bird. I don't know if it's trained or if they just have it uh, tied down in some way so that it can't move. It's just sitting there breathing. I want to say in the doctor's office, they could pull off the same effect. There might be some shots where, especially if we're like maybe in a wider shot where they use a dummy bird. Uh, I can't exactly remember what the bird looked like in uh, Joel's office. It had like a bandage, like it was right. uh, sutured okay. up and everything. And it was, I mean, I, I know it sounds silly for me to say this, but it certainly looked very real. And I was very impressed that he even got that on the bird in the first yeah, place. No, um, you're probably right. I think it's probably a real bird. And, and I was actually really impressed uh, with the, like I was saying, the shot after the bird has been clipped, like its wing got clipped by some bird shot. You see mm-hmm. it on the ground breathing. I was impressed. And I guess, I guess now I realize they probably could have tied it down or done something so that it couldn't move. But it seems like a very well-behaved and a a great actor. (laughs) Yeah, bird actor. So Joel is trying to nurse it and Maggie comes in and asks him, you know, like, are you, you know, are you being serious right now? It's meant to die. It was going to become someone's food eventually. It's lived two to three years. Some coyote Mm -hmm. or fox would have eaten it. You simply were just an alternative. 
but Joel still doesn't take it really well. Like he still wants to stay there and watch over the bird. He knows that it has labored breathing. He wants to carry it all the way through. And What's, unfortunately, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say, like, unfortunately, you know, it passes away at the passes end. Passes away. Well, what's great about the scene when when Joel is sitting there nursing it? So it begins. Uh, I believe the bird is in the foreground, but the focus is on Joel. He's kind of sitting. He's probably got his like hand on his chin or his hand on his head. Uh, he's visibly sweating, distressed. He's in one of those positions where he's just sitting there staring and he doesn't know what to do. That's when Maggie comes in and they have this whole kind of dialogue. Joel gets up, he kind of walks around. And what's really cool about the direction of this scene is Maggie, the writing too and, and the performance, but Maggie at the end of the scene, you know, she can't really believe it. And she, she sort of feels for Joel. She says, okay, well, let, let me buy you a cup of coffee. And uh, that is the moment when uh, Joel could, you know, take the lesson and learn it. And, you know, that would be sort of a point of resolution, an anticlimax almost, you know, he didn't really win, but he's like, all right, yeah, let's just, uh, let's let it blow over. But Joel uh, denies, he, he denies the, the offer and he just goes back and sits down. He says, no, I have to, I have to stay here. Uh, Joel returns to the original position he was in at the beginning of the scene. So again, another great use of blocking. He starts out in one, in one textual mindset, physically sitting down, gets up, starts walking around. But by the end, he returns to uh, his original mindset and his position. Mm, I didn't catch that. That's really, really good eye for that. And again, the, the camera lingers before cutting to a, a commercial break. Yeah, that's a lot of symbolic resonance right there within just the blocking. So, yeah, uh, we, we got the spoilers out of the way. The grouse bites the dust, uh, buys the farm, as it were. Buys the birdhouse? Yeah, yeah, I guess. Let's, uh, what, how does this resolve here? So Joel is back home, right? Yeah, Joel is back home, but I think that it resolves itself after that scene, though. Oh, right, right, right. Well, let's tie right. it together because um, it's sort of also tied in with Ruth Ann's ending. So we'll get yeah. let's let's wait till the very end and we'll get that. Okay. But before then, Joel is back home in his uh, cabin. His TV set is on, and he's got all these uh, rented tapes, you know, from Ruth Ann's store. Uh, you can see the the tape on top of the TV. It says Bambi. The label says Bambi on it. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know he's been watching that. There's a lot of tapes strewn about. You can't really tell what they say on them, but. Uh, Later, Maggie comes in and she picks them up. She reads them off. Old Yeller, Black Stallion, White Fang. Joel tells her about this movie called The Bear. Have you seen? I've never even heard of The Bear. I've never heard of The Bear either. Is that like a famous film? It is a real film. It uh, was released in France. But anyway, Joel sort of describes it to her. The movie is about a poor bear cub who loses its mother in an avalanche or something like that. Uh, and sort of like you were tell telling about the sports night, Compare the comparison to that is, you know, this animal knows its mother. You know, you can't tell me that it doesn't understand that this animal is part of its family. And you know, what what do we think about that? Um, quick little gaffe that I noticed when Maggie sits down next to Joel and she starts picking up these tapes. If you look uh, when she sits down, you can see a flag in the frame. You know, a flag is typically like a piece of uh, black opaque fabric that uh, shapes light, like it blocks the light, cuts the light off. So if you're going to light a scene, you've got all these movie lights, you know, on a set and you need to determine where the light will fall and where the shadows will be. So sometimes you have to, uh, in order to shape the light, you have to cut it off with some uh, 
with some black fabric so that it doesn't spill everywhere. But uh, no, pretty clearly, if you watch the moment that Maggie sits down in this scene, if you watch the top right of the frame, you can see all up in there is a, a, is a black flag. <laughs> pretty, I didn't uh, catch that at all. Pretty obvious. I just Honestly, I just thought it was part of his decor. Yeah, I think that happens a lot in, in film and TV where you can get away with a lot, especially because uh, a lot of times your eyes are drawn uh, to the actor. You're not really looking at the background. So it's really easy to, to miss those little gaffes. Mm. But this is the scene... Obviously, Joel has been crying. I think he admits uh, it was by Shelley's uh, advice. She says, you need to go have a good cry, basically. He gets it out of his system. And this is the kind of the moment where he's starting to come around. Uh, again, we'll get to the the final climax with uh, Ruth Ann's storyline as well. But this is a scene where I love this uh, this little exchange. Maggie says, don't you think you're taking this a little too much to heart? And Joel says, essentially, he says, you know, I realize I don't, I don't know everything. You were right. Maggie's right. He's, he's, his reaction is a little unnatural, you know, to be, at, to be reacting so strong. But Joel is uh, not backing down. He's serious about it. And it's sort of a good sentiment. You know, shouldn't we all feel strongly about things? You know, we, we don't do that enough. We're oftentimes we're a little desensitized to what's going around. And, you know, of course you can't, live your life every day. You have to put up blinders in some fashion. I was just talking to someone about compassion fatigue. Are you familiar with? Vaguely. Can you explain it really quickly? Compassion fatigue, I think, typically happens to healthcare providers like nurses and things because, you know, you have to be compassionate every day, multiple times a day, and it wears you out. You know, you, you, it, it takes a, almost a physical toll, an emotional toll on your, on your psyche. Regardless of all this, it's important not to forget that part of being human is having this ability for compassion. And that, that's something that Joel is representing strongly in this scene. He's, it's definitely seen as an overreaction, but the show doesn't really make fun of it. You know, we, we're there with Joel and we want to believe in him, you know? Yeah, that was, I thought you were going one way and then yeah. twisted it around. And I was oh. like, okay, now I have something different to okay. say. Because I thought you were going to make like a 2020 hot take right there. Oh. You were like, I don't think that there was enough people caring and I would make the opposite argument and say I think that people are having too many opinions mm. about things yeah I think a that little too there's strong. a lot of a, a little too strong because we have hard line opinions from the most mundane of things and yes. it will ostracize other people for not even having that like I think that Munster is the best cheese how dare you you're an animal I don't mm. want to be associated with you anymore uh <laughs> Obviously, I'm being hyper hyperbolic, but, you know, I, I think that we actually need to have less opinions on things and need to be more neutral and say, I have no opinion mm -hmm. on this subject matter. Uh, but then you turn it around and I, I, I see what you mean. Rather than having like opinions, but having a strong feelings and specifically in this case, uh, compassion, like having a sort of compassion to everyday life, every action you take. I, yeah. I think it's really interesting that you read the scene in that because I did not read the scene in that, but I can see how you came to that conclusion on there about Joel having earnestness and being sincere. And we as audience member being able to feel Joel through that moment, the way that I had read it was that Joel didn't necessarily know everything. I read it in the straightforward yeah, manner. Yeah, he says that. Yeah, he's like, I don't know everything. You were right. Yeah. And 
hunting was simply a background for him to step into. Like it wasn't actually the act of hunting. It's the act of him not knowing everything, a, a something that he held so much in one extreme and it came out the other end, oh. on the other extreme and now coming back in the middle. He's now realizing that so even though he is a, I, I would foresee like a very gifted medical professional, he does not know anything beyond that. Yeah. Uh, so this comes as a great shock to him. So you're seeing it as like a macro discovery that he kind of makes uh, the world at large, you know, like the bigger picture for sure. Yeah. That was the way that I had read it. And, but I like your interpretation of yeah. that because I did not see that. No, I think, I think both are really strong. That's what's great about the writing in, the, in this scene is that you can draw a lot from it. You can kind of make a lot of points with just uh, what they're saying to each other. Flashman. Don't you think you're taking this a little too much to heart? You were right. As a physician, you're trained to think you know everything about everything. I, I don't know everything. Uh, about this whole killing business. You, you said I, I didn't know what I was talking about. You were right. There is, um, I really like this line of dialogue. It's a little cheesy, but I, I think it's cool. Uh, I believe this is the scene where Joel tells Maggie, the killing was the best part. It's the dying I couldn't take. Mm. So, you know, he, he went all the way up river, you know, he went all the way with hunting and he just couldn't take it. You know, the results of his actions, I guess. <laughs> he likes the actions, not the results. So we're going to wrap this up in a nice bow at the end, but let's go into the sort of uh, secret Ruth Ann plot line that sort of develops here. Yeah. The escalating plot line. So we see that Ed, who is still assisting Ruth Ann throughout the store, yeah, probably to earn some extra cash. And he realizes that it was her 75th birthday yesterday and she didn't celebrate it at all. In fact, she didn't tell anybody. And I thought that the way the scene was going to play out was that Ed was kind of hurt that she didn't share that with anybody. But instead, what he's actually concerned about is the age itself. Yeah. 75 is just, a you know, kind of an old age to be living around. And he starts fearing for her mortality and starts treating her you know, as if she was made of glass. Yeah, throughout the episode, Ed is offering to be uh, her legs and feet, you know, walking around for her because obviously we saw she broke some bones or a bone or a fracture in her foot. So Ed's got to do not necessarily the heavy lifting, but sort of all the movement for her. And he's really sort of being protective of her. He, you know, he says he's got the kosher chicken soup. It's good for colds. Maybe it's good for bones too. I don't know. And it really comes to sort of a breaking point when Ed is sort of not really letting Ruthann do anything. I think at a certain point, Maurice enters the shop and Ruthann's going to grab him something and Ed sort of orders her to sit down or uh, I can't remember exactly how, how does this play out? Ruthann kind of you know, shovels Ed away and she shuffles off to go do the tasks that she wanted to do. I think Maurice was requesting something for his throat. Oh, because he was on the radio so much. He was talking. Uh, yeah. And we skipped that actually. But I mean, it's kind of not a huge... Uh, it's such a I wish, short little thing. I wish it would have been a little bit more, honestly. But it's really, I think, only one scene where... Maurice takes over K-Bear while Chris is uh, out hunting. Yeah. Anyway. Ed, Ed relays a lot of his fears and concerns about Ruthann to Maurice, saying that she's approaching being 75. Well, she is 75. And Maurice counters back by saying that it's genetics that, yeah. you know. Age is relative. Exactly. And I think Ruthann catches the tail end of that because she 
talks about her friends, one of which lived a long amount of time, and the other one didn't even make it to 50 because she died in a freak dancing accident. Yeah. Like, Sound like she was like trampled to death or something. Yeah, that's a way to die. A, not a good way to go. But um, no, yeah, she says uh, she had a friend who lived uh, up in her 90s or something like that, right? Yeah, uh, that actually is incredibly true, though. I think what Maurice is saying, I think that a lot of people's lifespans are determined just from birth, just from your genetics and luck. Because Ruth Ann is saying that she smoked. Yeah. Like what? Like, was it a pack a day? She said she says something like one an hour, maybe like one every other hour or something. Yeah. Some ridiculous amount of smoking, which ordinarily you would contract lung cancer and (laughs) pass away, but some people don't. And it it happens in real life. Some people will try to claim and be like, Oh, smoking doesn't do anything. I smoked every day since like world war one. I'm still fine. Uh, but it's, it's all really just luck and genetics. And I, I think that Ed kind of takes that. Okay. Well, there is a there is a scene where, and I want to say, I, it, it may not be the scene when, um, maybe it's the scene when Ruthann is smoking. Honestly, I can't remember. But Ed is uh, basically trying to say that he's got to leave early, and Ruthann is mm-hmm. like, "Okay, you can go." And Ed is like, "Well, I mean, I I was thinking I could stay around and help you stock some stuff, do this, but." I do have to leave early. So, you know, maybe I can't help you. She's like, it's fine. Go ahead. And he like, he keeps sort of doing that same circular <laughs> argument until finally, it's funny because he finally has to get something done. And that's when he, is that when he, he's preparing something for her. So there's a scene with Ed and Chris, right? Where they're at the brick and he's asking Chris, you know, what should I get someone for their birthday? Or How does it go? I think Ed is saying, Chris, do you know what women want? And Chris says like the same thing as men, but in prettier colors. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a good answer and a bad answer. For yeah. one, I thought they were going to go with something super sexist and be like, they want totally different things. I was like, no, I was going to, it's like, they're, they're human. They want the, they, they eat and drink. They do the same thing as men. Yeah. But yeah, it's the same, it's somewhat humorous answer. Yeah, yeah. It's a humorous answer right there. Uh, I mean, there's the ridiculous sort of thing where it's like, uh, you know, shaving cream for men or something, or what is it? Like, what's the, <laughs> you know, when things are marketed towards women and marketed towards men, and it's just like a, you know, pink for women, blue for men. It's the same product, you know? Yeah, like absolutely outrageous ones. Uh, I think I saw one think where it was one, like, yeah. I think I saw like a calendar that was marketed yeah. toward men and one that was marketed toward women. I was like, how can that even, the passage of time works both ways <laughs> for both genders. Like, I don't understand this. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, sorry. Where were you going with that? Oh, yeah. Chris yeah. was saying, why don't you get the person? Uh, I don't know if he knows that he's talking about Ruth Ann. Yeah. I, think, I think he possibly does. But he's saying, like, why don't you get her something that will keep going? Like, yeah. it's the gift that keeps on giving. Keep, gift that keeps on giving something personal, right? And this is sort of realized at the end of the episode where uh, Ruth Ann is about to start driving somewhere and her car battery is dead. She says something about something being 14 years old. She's talking about her car, right? Not her battery. I certainly hope so. Cause, Cause a 14 I wrote that down, battery said, should be dead. <laughs> that's impossible. <laughs> that is no batteries need to be changed every three years, depending on the climate that you live in. You might need to exchange it every two years. Uh, I think that's yeah. not even possible for a battery to get the 14 the years. Yeah, so, I think she must be talking about the car. So her, her car batteries, uh, the reason I bring up this step-by-step, step, her car battery is uh, going out. 
Uh, Chris starts to walk with her, you know, I guess towards the brick is where they're going. Um, because we, we sort of see these plans unfold throughout this one scene. As Chris and Ruth Ann are walking along, Shelly rushes by, but she's like trying not to interact. She's like, uh, hi, goodbye, you know. So we can mm-hmm. sense that something is going on. And um, Ruth Ann sort of puts it together in the dialogue. Chris says something, oh, you know, Shelly, you know, she's, uh, she's an open circuit, you know. And uh, <laughs> Ruth Ann says, uh, but is her ground wire connected? That's my concern. So we, you know, I'm starting to put it together from what I've seen and from the dialogue that someone uh, disconnected her battery, right? You know, that's the reason, like, this is all a plan. And we do see moments later, whenever they enter the brick, Chris reveals like some sort of cable. He's like, yeah, I disconnected the battery. This was all a setup to get you here. Happy birthday. It's a surprise birthday feast, huh. a grouse feast, right? Yeah, a grouse feast, but I totally missed what you were saying. Yeah. Uh, I thought that it was just a neat bit of writing that they were going for. Like they just carried yeah, the metaphor a the little metaphor. bit longer. One talks about some form of electricity and she carries it by, you know, alluding to whether she's grounded or not. Yeah. I didn't catch that whole other part. No, I think it totally works. Uh, aside from this uh, plot device, it works as a metaphor, but I think it's fun that they kind of uh, work hand in hand because uh, the metaphor that they're drawing is what actually happened uh, or, you know, it's it's sort of uh, referring <laughs> to the, the car battery, Ruthann's car battery. Yeah. So they throw her 75th birthday, a belated one, but she's delighted other way. She... You know, it's as it's the person who dreamed and schemed it and they're all eating grouse. And this is where it all connects back because Joel gets served uh, like a a piece of grouse. Yeah, I think it might be the whole grouse. I'm pretty sure they're not very big birds. So yeah, it's probably the whole grouse. And he remarks to Maggie who sits next to him saying like, oh, this is really delicious. This is like an exotic chicken. Uh, And then he ponders and says, do you think this could be? Do you think this could be? Yeah. The one? And And she's like, maybe so. And then instead of freaking out, Joel kind of accepts it. And he's like, hmm, all right. And I think that's a good acceptance of what transpired throughout the day. Yeah. So it's almost, uh, again, it's not like a hard and fast uh, this way is right, you know, your way is wrong. It's a good equilibrium that we've reached uh, through Joel and with Joel, right? Like we've kind of uh, settled. He, he's come to peace with this argument in his head, uh, which is a, yeah, great little arc. Can I just say that I, I wonder why, and I'm pretty sure this is like probably like a Seinfeld bit at this point, <laughs> but why does everything have to be tasting like chicken? Like, why is that? Yeah. The starting point for That's everything. That's the neutral. <laughs> That's the neutral. Like you eat anything, you compare it. It's like, it tastes like chicken. It's like, I don't know. We need to like get like a chemist like or like a food uh, scientist <laughs> on this show for this episode. Uh, that is a, yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's some science behind it, right? There's gotta it's be. It's not just a saying because things do taste like chicken, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm waiting for the day in which someone eats like a piece of beef and they're like, it tastes like chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So Ruth Ann realizes that Ed was the one who threw the party and she hugs him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's really sweet. And then Ed gives her his present, which initially is a jar of dirt. Yeah. Oh, my God. This is like slam dunk. This is like the perfect. I I love this ending. This is a great. It could have been played for so many different ways. Yeah. Like it could have been played as a comedy. Like she could have been like, you gave me like my own grave like what do you want me to die and it kind of like snowballed from there uh but they played it the other way where she took it to mean that like ed truly cares about me and he wants me to have a comfortable eternity 
So he gets me this plot of land. This is like the, I mean, you said this is maybe your favorite episode of the season. This moment, this ending is like one that has solidified in my mind. And I'm sure with the viewers of the show, this is like a very memorable moment of the entire series. Like this is one of the great moments of Northern Exposure. Oh yeah. A lot of pieces work together perfectly. Uh, and I guess we can talk about it one by one very quickly yeah. on this. Number one, the direction of the camera is brilliant. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, there's some helicopter shots, man. It's swimming around at the end. It's so crazy. So what's happening is, yeah, jar of dirt, it equates to, uh, this is just part of your present. Let me show you the full thing. They go to sort of a cliff overlooking a mountain. And he's like, here we are. Ruth Ann's like, oh, this is a beautiful view. Thank you for taking me here. He's like, um, this is a plot of land to be the spot of your grave, you know? Uh, and it's a little, God, this moment is so beautiful because it points directly at this uncomfortable moment that Ed and Ruth Ann have. You know, it's the the idea that Ruth Ann is going to die and she might die soon. She's the she's probably the oldest person that we've met, at least in the recurring cast. This this uh, fact is something that really has put a wrench in Ed and Ruth Ann's relationship. So by giving her this gift, Ed is confronting his fear and showing Ruth Ann that he can acknowledge that she's going to die and they don't really need to be afraid of it. Like Ruth Ann is the one who's like, I, I don't want to feel old. Like, I don't want to be afraid of this. And it's Ed who's kind of uh, upset about that, but it's not an easy gift. It's something that Ed is really uncomfortable with, but he's um, presenting it you know, together that they can share it. And Ruth Ann says, you know, what should we do now? You know, you know, what I would like to do is uh, dance on my grave. This is the opportunity of a lifetime. You know, we can, we can actually dance on my grave and they start dancing. Yeah. The sort of um, very Northern exposure-y uh, score that uh, accompanies this scene. Yeah, the music is great. We've never heard this music before. It sounds very Northern exposure like you said. Yeah, I tried to find out what it was. According to Moose Chick, the song is called Dancing on the Grave, and it's written by... David Schwartz, you know, that's the guy who gave us uh, all the music, the score for Northern Exposure. So original piece of music for the scene. How aptly named. Yeah. And just like you described, the content is great. What it all means, the symbolism, obviously dancing on someone's grave means to celebrate a person's death slash downfall. So when you're dancing on your own grave, it means you're celebrating your own death slash downfall. So that's going fantastic. They're just, they're firing on all cylinders. Camera, music, content, symbolism, the dancing itself, I guess. They're, they're dancing pretty well. It's Just a, everything's going great. It's a great alley-oop because like whether or not, it's hard to say if this gift is like necessarily a conscious idea of Ed. Like he's like, I, I'm really uncomfortable with this. This is the best way that I can come to terms with it. Rather, it seems very, very much like an unconscious understanding. Uh, mostly because what, everything that we're describing is not really said in dialogue and, and it would be less, it would be less effective if it was explained. And if Ed was like, I've been thinking about it, I've been really uncomfortable about this whole thing, but uh, here's my way of like thanking you and showing you that, that I want to share with you life and death and, and be happy about things. Uh, so the effectiveness of film and TV is, is never in explaining something, but really just feeling it, you know, even past showing it, just eliciting that feeling of understanding in almost an unconscious way. And like you said, it's sort of the perfect storm of all these different elements. And man, is this a way to 
to close out an episode. Perfect ending. Yeah, perfect ending. And it's all just visual based, like you were saying, which is something that film, television, to a degree, theater uh, all yeah. share in common with each other. The root cause is that it's visually based uh, rather than reading, which you would never be able to pull off in that format. So less is more. Yeah, that's really what we're trying to get at. Just no dialogue needed to be spoken. Just them dancing on that plot of land. Yeah, I mean, I was very exhilarated uh, after finishing this episode. I think I texted you that very happy to be back uh, with the podcast and uh, probably alluded to this on air, but definitely off air. I've said, uh, you know, we're starting to get into the meat of season three. Like there's going to be some of my favorite episodes are, are coming up lots of them in a row. You know, the first two seasons are quite short. This is a long one, uh, you know, or normal length, you know, so we're going to get a lot more good packed into the episodes. Mm, Getting into the meat and potatoes. So we talked about how great this episode was, and we're talking about how we're just getting into the, the real essence of Northern Exposure to season three, but you've heard us talk about this. (laughs) Let's hear someone else talk about it. So this is where we like to get someone who's never seen the show at all. This person has zero context of Northern Exposure, and they're going to give us their, you know, their unsolicited opinion on it. Hi, I'm returning back to the podcast a few days later since we recorded our initial episode. We were waiting on our original guest for today to send in his analysis, and he did send it, but for a totally different episode than today's. Somehow the wires got crossed and he watched a different upcoming episode, so we'll be examining his thoughts later on in the pod down the road. But we still wanted to release this episode on time, so we booked another guest to come in at the last moment. John graciously came in at the 11th hour to help us out, so thank you so much, John, for swooping in. John is Lee's friend and frequent collaborator, and speaking of Lee, I'd ordinarily be accompanied with my co-host, but Lee is too busy being a rock star and touring with his band right now, so it's going to just be me talking to myself today, not unlike any other day. He did send me his notes for John's analysis, so I'll be answering them along the way. All right, so let's roll the tape. Hi, my name is John, and I just watched Season 3, Episode 8 of Northern Exposure, A Hunting We Will Go. Having never seen the show before, I did want to give props at the top for the goofy opening credit sequence with the moose wandering into town, and we get all these shot reverse shots of him seeing a smattering of moose antlers hung over small businesses. Something about it was very just goofy and silly to me, so props there. Getting into the actual episode, it opens sort of like a Canadian Aaron Sorkin. And I know it's in Alaska, but Alaska's more Canadian than America, isn't it? So right out of the gate, it's a very dense, flowery language opening on Chris's radio show and transitioning right into Joel's confrontation with Maggie over the ethics and morality of killing a wild deer. I am curious how often the show opens on a monologue from Chris and how important the radio station is to this town of eight or nine people. Maurice seemed to take offense that Ruth Ann didn't have the radio on when he went into the store, so I wonder if the local station is constantly playing in every general store, doctor's office, and restaurant in town. Right off the bat, having never spent a single episode prior with these characters, I dislike Joel Fleischman, Dr. Joel Fleischman, very much. Uh, for being whiny and pretentious, even though I can appreciate his stance on hunting at the beginning. I only recently myself hunted duck for the first time uh, a couple months ago, and I wasn't totally sure what my feelings on the subject truly were until I bagged that first bird. Um, So I'll circle back to that at the end. But uh, moving along, I do generally like 
just about every combination of character dynamics in this show, or this episode at least, whether it's Joel and Chris, or Ruth Ann and Ed, or Shelly and Ed, or Joel and Ed. I guess what I'm really trying to say is I love Ed. I'm curious what his role in the show is prior to this episode, since his presence working in Ruth Ann's store is alleged to be new, something that he's, quote, showing a real aptitude for. The only character combination that just, like, turns me right the hell off is Holling and Shelley. Not because I necessarily believe that May-December relationships are inherently creepy or anything, and when you're in a small town of eight people and a third of them are over 60, you take what you can get, but Holling is a creep. A likable creep when he's around other people, but the way he goes off on a tangent about Shelley painting her toenails just gives me the heebie-jeebies. And more on them, quick sidebar, do they live in the restaurant or the tavern or whatever we're calling it that they operate? Because on the morning of the hunt, when they're loading up the truck, Holling's in his hunting gear, of course, but Shelly's in her robe, and does that mean they sleep in the restaurant? I don't know. These are the sort of burning questions that make me sort of tepidly interested in seeing more of the show. Uh, (laughs) The shining star of this episode, obviously, gotta give it to the B-plot with Ed and Ruth Ann. Uh, The two are just adorable together, and they play with each other so well. If anything were to get me coming back to this show, it would definitely be... There would have to be a guarantee that those two shared the screen a lot, which, based on sort of the context clues of this episode, I'm thinking maybe is not the case. But back to the main event with Joel and the hunt. I think everything about this story and his arc rings really true, and it's sort of what made me in the end kind of like Joel a little bit. Sure, he's a little exhausting most times, and but his childlike wonder and sort of absence of shame when he's like trying to learn about what it is to hunt uh, just was really sweet and I think commendable. Uh, from the way he over-prepares in buying up his hunting and camping gear for what amounts to a day and a half out of town, to his eagerness to just look at the guns, it's all very guy who's never touched a gun in his life and has probably seen very few in person, maybe some still lifes at the Met, but (laughs) when Joel sees the grouse that he's winged, um, just staring right at him, and he begins to spiral, that's just felt like such a real moment, because when I shot my first duck, our guide, you know, waded out into the water, brought it back, and then slung it on a metal noose that is apparently the uh, tool of choice for hunting ducks and holding them while you continue to hunt. Uh, While there was a lot of waiting, because that's mostly what hunting is, I spent my fair share of time just looking into its still open eye as the last bits of life left its body. And it almost looked like it was crying. I don't know, had I the facilities and the know-how, I might have also tried to do surgery on the duck. So everything that Joel goes through after hitting the grouse really redeemed him for me. And... I don't know if it would necessarily resonate with everybody for the same reason, but I also kind of suspect that Joel uh, Joel goes back to being a whiny New York intellectual uh, at the beginning of season three, episode nine, but I'd have to watch more to know for sure. Uh, before I wrap up, I did want to point out just a couple of moments that really made me laugh because uh, I think they really deserve to be given their their props. When Ed finds out that Ruth Ann is 75 and the way he's just gobsmacked killed me as he's trying to open that can of soup and he's just kind of frozen and confused, loved it. And pretty much every scene with them together 
throughout the rest of the episode. It's just so dumb and funny and sweet, and I'm, I'm here for it. Shelly's story about her pet angel fish, Angel, uh, <laughs> taking her on a walk in a pickle jar was just so dark and weird and ridiculous, and I just, that was, that was probably the funniest moment in the entire episode for me. And when Joel says at the party at the end, as he's trying the grouse, that he's never eaten a patient before, I thought that was very just goofy and funny and made Joel a little more likable still. And I just can't believe that Ed, sweet and dumb as he is, thought it would be a good idea to buy Ruth Ann a grave for her birthday. But the scene where they dance at the end, uh, as we pull out in the helicopter shot, just like, how sweet is that? I do, you know, for my sake as a viewer, what I want out of this, I'm hoping that after a little bit of dancing, uh, they get a little hot and heavy on that grave because not many people can say they've danced on their grave, but I imagine the amount of people who can say that they've boned on their grave, uh, pun sort of intended, uh, is much smaller. And Ruth Ed is what I'm going to call uh, their couple name until I'm told that that does not become a thing. And if there is no Ruth Ed moving forward, I don't need any more Northern exposure personally. Mostly that comes down to Joel being the protagonist. I just don't know if I can have my main plot week in and week out uh, be that guy. But I don't know, maybe there are some better episodes that could uh, ring my bell and I would be interested to know what those are. But. In the meantime, I'll probably leave it at just this one episode. So I did want to thank Lee for reaching out to me uh, on short notice to watch this episode and give some feedback. And I hope it uh, sparks some adequate conversation. Thanks, y'all. Okay, so that was John's thoughts about the episode. I have to praise his honesty in saying he wouldn't watch another episode of Northern Exposure with the reasoning that Joel was too much of an unlikable lead. Me and Lee have noticed that we're getting that remark a lot. And maybe we've slowly acclimated to his whiny behavior. Or maybe we have Stockholm Syndrome. But newcomers can't handle Joel's sour flavor. Lee mentions in his notes that Joel's hard to like. But in the grand scheme of the show, he's come around to liking him because of the compassion Joel demonstrates and Joel's room for improvement. I agree with Lee. Character arcs are valuable for story purposes, and I think Joel shows glimmers of it as the show progresses. I personally hope Joel starts showing real change in his arc soon, because like John mentions, Joel probably goes back to his default state of being grouchy next episode. I'm also not a fan of unlikable leads too much either. I know a lot of people like the TV show Girls, or It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, but I can never get into the swing of them because the main leads were just unpleasant characters. John mentions he's recently been hunting, and I liked his observation about hunting being mostly waiting, and how he spent his time idling by staring into the eyes of the duck he had just brought down, a quiet contemplation of the acts that transpired. I think taking the life of another being, for whatever reason, should require you to understand the scope of your actions. I think it's eloquent what he brought up. Lee's got some answers for John's questions. A lot of episodes do open with Chris delivering a sermon over the air. Ed, who's also an amateur filmmaker, worked various odd jobs before working at Ruth Ann's, and Holly and Shelley do in fact live above the brick. Speaking of Holly and Shelley, another guest, another what the heck is going on with Sicily and the age of consent. Holly and Shelley once again playing hopscotch with that line between love and legality. Though John seems to be down with the reverse Holly Shelley with Ed and Ruth Ann. 
Unfortunately, Lee wrote back to say there's no Harold and Maude story between the two. And there's especially no getting hot and heavy at the grave. This ain't no Philip Roth Sabbath theater here. So anyway, John, thanks again for watching the episode at the last minute. We loved your honest thoughts about the show. Next week, we'll be back to talk about the next episode named Get Real. Reality checking in at Sicily soon, so be sure to check in with us next week to talk about it. Thank you for listening, everyone, and be sure to write in at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com to share us your thoughts, corrections, heck, even just talk about your day. We're down for that. Play me off. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And big thanks to John for being our guest. If you want to write into the podcast, you can email us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And of course, thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>